Welcome to Real Talk, Secrets to Success, a place where we get real advice from industry insiders on how to make it in the movie business. In this episode, I have the huge pleasure of chatting with Cheryl Old Bedford. Producer, line producer, educator, and activist, Cheryl is the founder of Women of Color Unite and the JTC List. She also leads the hashtag Start With A initiative which matches women of color with industry mentors to help them reach the next stages in their careers. Cheryl is actively working to bring down barriers in the industry in order to create space for all marginalized people and amplify their voices. Hello, Cheryl. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Sabby, for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I figure we could get started by you giving us a little intro of yourself and how you've gotten to wherever it is you're at today with your career. Sure. So my name is Cheryl L. Bedford. I am the founder of Women of Color Unite. We're the largest nonprofit of women of color in entertainment. And I'm creator of the JTC List. It's named after my mother, Joan Teresa Curtis, who is an activist. The JTC List is the accompanying database of women of color, uh, 3,500 and climbing. So people in the industry can't say they can't find any women of color above or below the line. I am a producer and line producer by trade, worked in over 17 independent feature films, thousands of hours of content as a producer, line producer. Most people in the industry know me from the award-winning documentary, Dark Girls, about colorism. I was Bill Duke's producer for years. So that is who I am. Oh, and I'm an educator. So I taught at New York Film Academy I taught in Los Angeles. I taught producing. I was also their very first chair of diversity development in Los Angeles. And I taught the art of line producing at UCLA Extension in Westwood, California. Love it. I know you're very big on activism and we'll talk a little bit about that later on. But what, looking back at all of your years in the industry, what would you say was your breakout opportunity? The one that opened all the doors for you and how did you go about getting it? I, I can't separate activism from what I do. So I'm going to tell you a little story. And so I went to NYU in their film and television department. I was the only Black person who started in 1984, who went through all four years, 1988. There were two of us when I started. Troy, who transferred to USC. Uh, so I did all four years, undergraduate film and television. And then I went to the American Film Institute. And I have a master's degree from AFI. Uh, in producing. So when I went to NYU, it was the number one film school in the country. When I went to the American Film Institute, it was the number one film school in the country. And when I graduated from the American Film Institute, there were less than 200 people in the entire world with a master's degree from AFI, let alone who had also done, you know, one of the other big schools, right? Because when I graduated from, uh, I started in when I was 23, 24 years old at AFI, the average age when I went there was 32. So they, what you mainly had were people who were like directors in theater who wanted to be directors in film, writers in theater or other things, uh, production managers worked on big films who wanted to be producers. So I was one of the youngest in my class. So when I graduated from the American Film Institute with my degrees and I had won awards and all of that kind of stuff, I could not get a job. Couldn't get a job as a young black woman, could not get a job. Interviewed all over the place. 
everybody handed me all of those diversity because a lot of the diversity things have actually been around for 30 years. And I read it and I was like, yeah, no, I just want somebody to hire me because I'm good because I'm one of the best. And so I was lucky in that that was the height of independent filmmaking or really the start of it in the 90s. And so I just went off and made a career for myself. I also uh, ran a small boutique studio for a while after I'd done a bunch of films and then left that and went back to independent filmmaking. And then somewhere along the line started teaching because I always wanted to teach. So for me, there was never a big moment, shall we say. But I will say one of the highlights of my career, two things. One, my very first mentor, who was Nima Barnett who was the first black woman to ever win an Emmy directing comedy. So Nima was my mentor. I actually met her when I was running this small studio. I happened to be at Sundance. And so, or right before I actually started running it. And then, so I was in my late thirties by the time I met Nima. And then uh, not long after that, I met Mr. Bill Duke. Bill Duke taught me a lot. Bill Duke taught me two really important things. Number one, Build your family. Go find people who believe in the same thing you do. The other thing was don't play in a crowded field. Go build your own. And so I call him Papa Duke. So I was his producer for years. And he taught me a lot about how to navigate in this industry, how to build my own, how to forge my own way. So Nima and Bill gave me a really, a really good sense because I'd made it up to a point in my career. But Nima really, just as a Black woman navigating the industry, since she was one of the first. And then my Papa Duke, who really just, he was the one who really just instilled in me, just go build your own. And so that's what I went out and did. And Women of Color Unite, you know, sort of, to a certain extent came out of that. My mother was an activist. And I had grown up as child of an activist. My uncle Thomas, who is a retired judge in Baltimore, Maryland, helped to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. His youngest son, one of my cousins is disabled. So there was no moment where somebody gave me a break. There was always this moment of me hitting glass ceilings, uh, having doors slammed in my face, and just, it, I actually wrote a blog about it years ago. I call it shifting. I've always been really, really good at shifting. So when somebody says no, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go over here. I'm not one of those people who are like, oh, please, please, please. I don't do that. I'm like, okay, you said no. There's going to be another way. Because the one thing about this industry that I hope I can instill in everybody is there's no one way. There's no one way of, of doing things, right? That you can forge your own path. One of the main things I will say is build your family, find people who believe in the same thing. And don't always look up, look sideways, right? To the people who are coming along with you. I worked for the same people often on my entire career. People I've met between NYU and AFI. So that's sort of my biggest thing, because I didn't have that one moment where somebody gave me a break. I just was very good at shifting. And I was very lucky in the sense that I did come up during the age of, you know, the sort of the height of independent filmmaking in the 90s.
That is such a great story. And one of the things I love the most about hearing you speak is how you have such an empowering story because you, you do that, you shift and you find ways, but you don't just find ways for yourself. You bring everybody else up with you and I find that to be so inspiring. So thank you for everything you do. I wanted to go back to the topic of mentorship because that is such a key thing. I, in the last year and a half, I have been fortunate to, have, to find mentors and that even here in little Uruguay, that has helped so much in, you know, getting closer to the industry from all the way from here, uh, from learning and working with these mentors. And, you know, I know you have Start With Eight, which is for mentorship. And I would love to talk about that for a little bit, because I think it's such a great initiative that you have. Uh, absolutely. I realized that uh, to a very large extent, I wish I'd had Nima and Bill when I was younger, right? Like they, they became my mentors. But at that point, I had actually built a solid career. They did help me to navigate sort of the next stages in my career, but I, but I think it would have been wonderful to have them when I was first starting off, right? And so I'm a very big believer in mentorship. And I'll tell you, it really grew out of statistics. So when we did Women of Color Unite, as a lot of people may or may not know, they don't, nobody has to pay for anything. But there are these forms that you fill out, right? And those forms give us the largest study of women of color in entertainment. So I pulled out our statistics from women and people of color and BIPOC. And so it's specifically women of color. Well, one of the first things that we realized was that what we call our in-betweeners, people who have between three and 10 years worth of experience are still waiting to get in the room. And it's something that actually Gregory, our white guy, <laughs> who's our treasurer and director of operations, who's a very good friend of mine and really helped me build Women of Color Unite from the start. Gregory calls it exclusion by familiarity. And what that means is that people in the industry may or may not be racist, sexist, whatever, right? Like, I don't know what's in the hearts and minds of other people. But what we do know is that people tend to hire two things, people who look like them and people in their circle. So when you can negate that exclusion by familiarity, then you can start getting marginalized people hired, right? So people always ask us why the JTC list, why we get so many people ask for it and why they want it and why women of color get hired off of it. And it's because of something we realized very early on, that to get rid of exclusion by familiarity, you have to get those who can hire, fund, and distribute in the same room. So for two years, we held events. Some of them were very small meet and greets with studio heads. Some were much larger, but we kept having event after event after event. So when the pandemic happened and the subsequent rebellion happened, people were like, well, okay, let's hire marginalized people. Well, where can we trust? Oh yeah. Well, we had met these women because what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the diversity programs, what they do is they otherize people. And when you otherize them, you dehumanize them. So these lists are like phone books. They're just like, okay, well, a list of people. What you have to do is make them familiar. And by having these events, what you do is you get rid of that otherization. And I have seen it happen where white men are just like, oh, 
oh, this woman of color who I'm having a conversation with, whatever, she's just like me. She just wants to be able to do her work, pay her bills, right? Do what she loves. So you get rid of that otherization. Now they're familiar. And that's why we've had the success that we've had. So we built upon all of that. And then uh, Tope uh, from Bitch Pack hit me up one morning. I woke up and she had tagged me on this thing called hashtag start with eight Hollywood because she had tried it twice before, but it wasn't until the rebellion that it stuck. And Cassie and Elways was the first one who said, yes, I will meet with eight women of color. And it began to grow. Screenwriter. I am a producer, former chair of diversity development, built my department from scratch. She tagged me and we built an entire program. So between two rounds of hashtag start with eight Hollywood, one round of hashtag start with eight Canada, we've gotten over 1000 women of color mentors in the industry. Now everybody gets two and people are like, why does everybody get two? You could probably do better if you, more people, if you did one, ha ha, because uh, some people are performative. I'm just going to say it, Savvy. Some people are performative. So we figure, yeah, but 50-50 shot, like you have a really good shot of having somebody who's not performative. Some people end up with two wonderful mentors. Uh, some people, one, you know what I'm saying? But nobody pays for anything. So here's been the interesting part of this. You know, I can't get Hollywood to fund us. The largest diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility program ever in the history of Hollywood, right? The success that we have had, there have been women who've gotten into writer's room, gotten their WGA card, gotten their projects funded, distributed, all of that. We can't get Hollywood to fund us. And people are like, why? And I was like, well, first of all, it shows you that meritocracy is a complete and utter lie. Right, because if it's goes so sometimes I'm on Twitter, I'm like, I want all diversity money. Like I want all your money. Like Disney, I want all your money. Sony, I want all your money. Cause I'm like, if it really is about meritocracy, right? And we just do first come, first serve. People are like, yeah, it's competitive. It's only competitive because you got to set your alarm, you got to get up, and you actually have to fill out the form. And all the forms tell us from the mentees is. What do you need? What do you need to move your career forward? What are you looking for? And then we set them up with mentors who are willing to do the same. The last round we had 660 women of color with 160, 163 uh, mentors. So come June, we are launching the third round of Hollywood, the second round of Canada and the very first round of the UK. Yeah, it's a lot. And so, yeah, I'm out here trying to get Hollywood to fund us and they're just looking at me like I lost my mind. But I think to them, I have. Because think about it. Everything that this industry has told you, we have proven is a complete and utter lie, right? Everything, every trauma essay that you have to fill out, when people are like trauma essay, it, it's that thing where they want you to tell you how, why you want to be a filmmaker, but what they're really looking for is something awful that happened into your life. Like, that's not my story. I wanted to be a filmmaker because of the fact that I, when I was eight years old, I went to see a little night music on Broadway and I saw Glenish John sing Send in the Clowns. And I said to my mother, that's what I wanted to do. And what I meant was I wanted to create, right, for, for the larger world to see. 
And that's how I became a filmmaker. But the fact is, mine isn't, that's my story. And it's a joyful story. And I don't think that in a lot of cases when people are looking for story, they're looking for, you know, sort of these hard knocked up stories. And look, if that is somebody's story, that is your story. That wasn't my story. And I knew what they wanted from me. And I was like, but that's not my story. And so I just think that mentorship is extremely important. And if you look at the tweets, a lot of people, a lot of these mentors are like, so I met my eight Hollywood should be scared. That's what it boils down to, right? Because marginalized people have been kept out of, we have stories. We have stories that people have never heard of. Look, when I watched, when I saw Watchmen and Lovecraft County and they talk about the burning of Black Wall Street and everything that happened, I was like, y'all didn't know about this? Like, I knew about it. I know what Juneteenth is. I, I knew about all of those things. So what I'm here to say is that the, the we've been so erased from history that we have all of these stories to tell. And I mean, all marginalized. I mean, women have stories to tell. BIPOC, uh, the disabled community, people, we combat sizeism. You know what I'm saying? There are my friend, Delanie Pease, a white girl. She has a series, She's Too Fat, about sizeism and body positivity. Like there are all of these people who have all of these wonderful stories to tell. Hollywood should be scared. Yeah, I love that. I I see that a lot too with the Latinx community. That's the one I'm most engaged with because it's what I'm part of. And, you know, we are usually just distilled to the Mexican stereotype and that's like where all of us have to fit in. But here in South America, we're like, <laughs> that's Central America. Like it's not even part of, you know, the same subcontinent. So yeah, we do have a lot of stories to tell. And I love that you know, you're helping get those voices heard. I think it's amazing. And I wanted to go back to what you were talking about the events, because one thing we've mentioned a lot in this podcast, we only have like four episodes so far, but we always talk about networking and the power of networking. And it really, like, I feel like, you know, filmmaking is an industry, an industry where networking is where it's, everything is at. And so creating this event and giving, you know, democratizing the networking so everybody can have access to it it's it's really what makes all the difference not just filling coins but putting people in those rooms and actually having the chance to network so the casting black casting director she did fruitvale station along with being mary jane you may have seen her on, on clubhouse tracy twinkie bird yeah so Twinkie and I've been friends for years and I remember, and, and I always give her credit for it because she was the first person I ever heard say, your net worth is your net work. And I was like, oh, ain't that the truth, right? And so because of it, because of your net work being your net worth, that's one of the reasons we have events. Here's the other thing. I also realized that I couldn't charge anybody. So here's a trick in Hollywood that if you charge somebody like a studio, a studio may buy an entire table. They will send their assistants. But if you invite them and you don't charge them anything and you're like, I'm going to feed you, I'm going to get you tip. I mean, feed you, I mean, get you drunk. I mean, give you some alcohol. <laughs> uh, you are going to show up. You're going to show up. So our events 
are completely and utterly free. They are free to our members. They are free to our allies. They are free to the entertainment industry. And I have watched deals happen and people get hired and get meetings and stuff. And I'm like, that's it. So, and, and I'm going to be very honest, that came from when I was going to American Film Institute. There was this Hollywood party. So you have to understand it was somewhere between 90 and 93. And they wanted $50. Now I'm going to tell you, back then, $50 at the 99 cent store could get me two weeks worth of groceries. I'm not lying. Two weeks worth of groceries. And a friend of mine's like, hey, Cheryl, come to this. It's $50. Now it's like, are you out your mind? And uh, he said, I will pay for you. And it was a Christmas party. And I walked in and we were two, like two of the only black people in there. And I walked in, I was like, oh, I saw people handing out business cards. I didn't have any business cards at the time. Uh, I saw people handing out business cards and I was like, oh, this is where it happens. And look, people have heard me say it. Nobody is going to be surprised. I'm not saying anything. I don't say to people's faces, but I think that that is one of the way that a lot of the white female-led groups in Hollywood have kept us marginalized. Because if you charge yearly fees, then you charge for events, and then for this, and then for that, it, it still keeps us out. So that was one of the things that we decided very, very early on that just wasn't going to charge people. Not only what don't I charge them for hashtag start with eight or a partnership to take with the Casting Society of America. So there are going to be acting classes that you can take with some of the top casting directors. Hashtag start with eight Hollywood. You know, the final draft gave out final draft 11 to anybody who didn't have it, who took part in hashtag start with eight Hollywood. They just gave free upgrade to Final Draft 12 to everybody. We just made a deal with Genre TV, which is run by two Black female international distributors. They started their own Roku channel. Women of Color Unite, we're gonna have two blocks. One for Women of Color Unite members only, which will be three to four hours. And the other block is Women of Color Unite, we leave no marginalized group behind for other people dealing in all of the other isms. So it could be a white guy who has a disability will show their stuff and any other marginalized group. Here's the thing. We as a nonprofit and as the curator of this, because we're the ones who have to get it together and send it to them, blah, blah, blah. We take 15%, which is what we're allowed by law as a nonprofit. Then it's a 70-30 split. So the content creators get 70, genre TV gets 30. And here's the best part about it. They are international distributors. They're going to be pushing the content around the world. So everybody will have a chance, you know, as anything to have their content distributed even beyond that. And we just made the deal. And so by the time you do this podcast, the date may be over, but then on, um, uh, tomorrow, which is April 14th, we're doing a Zoom with them and they're going to be answering everybody's questions. And what I decided, what we, what my staff and I decided was that to curate it, we have women of color critics who belong to Women of Color Unite. I'm going to let them curate it. So people are going to send it in and we're, there's going to be a form and it'll go on, it'll automatically go on to Airtable, just like when you join Women of Color Unite, you're onboarded and immediately added to the JTC list. It's an automatic thing. And so, and then they'll go in 
and pick the content for both things. And I've already talked to two of them and I'm like, I'm going to put out a notice, but they're two of the more well-known ones. And I was like, Hey, could you, do you guys mind doing this? They're like, it sounds great. I'm like, I can't pay you at least to start because we won't have any money coming in. But they're like, no, we'll do this for the cause. I could not do what we do if it weren't for the sweat equity of women of color. Because in, in believing the same things, in knowing, in finding that community, I all the time I have like people, I want to volunteer. What can I do? Right. And we just ask people to donate what you can when you can. If we have help you financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, if you get anything from belonging to this community, donate what you can when you can. And that's one of the ways that we've been able to, you know, keep things free. And I'll be honest, having 3,500 members, at least now, because for the first two years we existed on my five credit cards, but now we get enough that we can pay for our Zoom, we can pay for Mighty Network, all, we can pay for Variety Insights and all of those sorts of things that help us keep this community flourishing. And hopefully it will keep flourishing even more because it's a beautiful thing you do. I wanted to touch on a couple of things that you mentioned. First of all, I wanted to ask, you mentioned, you know, the, the financial hardships and the fact that you don't get any funding, especially from big studios. But what have been some of the other challenges you faced in putting this together and what lessons have come from that? I am really glad I'm a producer. So I don't, I, and I say that because I don't find it odd. It's like when Tote tagged me, right? She's a screenwriter, I'm a producer. So there are a few things to know. Number one, I have really thick skin. I've been in this industry a long, long time. The other thing is I can make the tough decisions. My mom being an activist, sometimes she was like, I'm gonna do it my damn self. So there's nothing that I ask anyone to do that number one, I'm not willing to do. And I think that people understand that. Oh, really, it's the funding. It, it really is. We have such a lovely community. And, you know, from job postings that people hear about, there was always this idea that somehow we were crabs in the barrel. So I'm about to curse a lot, but it's because I'm about to quote D.L. Hughley. So D.L. Hughley, the comedian, I heard him say one time, uh, you don't want us to be crabs in a barrel. Stop putting us in a motherfucking barrel. And I realized that that within that moment that that and it, and it's also the idea of oh you want us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but you haven't given us boots or a strap, right? So if I create a community and not just me, when I say I, I really mean Women of Color Unite, we create this community of people who are so willing to give of themselves, right? That everybody else gives of themselves and then everybody else gives of themselves. And we see job postings all the time. And because of the fact that we are this wonderful community, I have studios and stuff who send us job listings first and sometimes not even other people, we get them, right? because they have trusted this wonderful community that we have curated. And so I, I think that that for me, it, it's just all, all been about the money. Well, and I will say, and trying to, and other partnerships that people have asked us for, uh, performative. There, there's just a lot of performative behavior. There, there really is. 
I, I'm thinking about call. Think about telling you. I'm so I'm going to tell this story because I don't care. So, so tell us the story. We want the story. I'm gonna tell, the the story. Story. I'm gonna tell this story because I don't care. So the marketing company for Red Bull, we had asked them uh, for sponsorship for our event right before the pandemic, and we didn't end up having it because of the pandemic. But they were like, "Well, we'll give you product, but no money." It's like I don't need your product. I need money, but okay. Uh, but then we didn't have it. So during this pandemic and rebellion, they reached out to us and they're like, we'd like to support you. I'm like, okay, well, we have six programs that are based on our statistical analysis of what women of color need. They're on our website. We downloaded it. Now on the website, it doesn't have the price at the bottom of it. Aha, but we know the price of it. Downloaded all six of them, put the price tag at the bottom of it, sent it to them, this marketing firm for Red Bull. They chose a $1 million program. We discussed it thoroughly. It was short film content. And so they wanted to do, we had discussed this whole campaign about how it would be Red Bull gives women of color wings. And because of what they do and their sponsorship of you know extreme sports and all of that, it was going to be $100,000 to seven short action films by women of color. The rest would go to women of color, Unite to Curated, my staff, the 15% we could take and all of that, plus a little leftover just in case the women ran over, right? So that was the $1 million. It was called Red Bull Gives Women of Color Wings. We had all of this, had it laid out. My entire staff was on the Zooms with them, ghosted us, ghosted. Oh, wait, sent us all gifts of alcohol and Red Bull. Not a joke. Sent us all gifts across the, up and down the country, like wherever we were, sent us all gifts. Ghosted. Completely. I hit him up a couple of times, didn't hear from him. I, I did it there. I do three times and you're out, like I'm done. The third time they come back and they say, this is not a joke. Yeah, we still want to do the same things, but uh, what we'd like to do is get $5,000 for one for a film. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You pick a program, then at the bottom of the program says, cost $1 million. You come back and say that you want to give us $5,000 so that somebody could do some short and they still wanted to stick their name on it. I told them in no uncertain terms, I said, you could take that $5,000 and shove it right up your goddamn ass. That's performative behavior. You pick a $1 million program, send us all gifts. We work it all out. I had actually started telling a few of my members who work in the action, like um, stunt women, things like that, who I knew were starting to direct and write and so forth and so on. I had let them know that this was coming, so forth and so on, because we had worked it all out. $1 million price tag. Ghosted, came back $5,000. Tell them exactly where they could put that $5,000. That's performative behavior. Here's the other thing. They wasted my motherfucking time. They wasted my time. They wasted my entire staff's time. And you come back for five, I, I, mm, if I'd have had any of that alcohol and Red Bull left, I'd have sent it back to them. I'd have sent their shit back to them so fast. 
I was, because I actually gave a lot of mine away. I was like, I would have sent that back to them and said, there is a line that Dr. Cheryl Grills says in Dark Girls, the movie that I'm most known for. And that is this, I'm good, you keep that. That's exactly what I said to them. I'm good, you keep that. That's performative behavior. And I don't mind telling that story. I tell that story all the time. Because here's the other thing. I have all the emails to back it up. I have the emails where we laid the whole thing out. Nikki Freeman was on the call. She's one of our line producers. Nikki had done the budget for it. Like, yes, that is performative behavior at its worst. Because you're going to come back and offer $5,000 for a program that you know costs $1 million. So that you could stick your name on something and use women of color unite and act like you're doing something in the middle of a rebellion. I guess it, I guess the protests were ending and they thought that they didn't have anything. What? Why do anything else? That is the kind of shit that I faced because my staff works tirelessly for next to no money, and. Performative behavior is one thing, but performative behavior and wasting our time is something totally different. I've had studios who want to stick their name on hashtag start with eight because we've been able to do stuff they couldn't do. Uh, I'll send them a money. They, they've all come back. No, we want to give you this. I'm like, mm, no, because I know what we're all worth. All 3,500 plus of us. I know how much we are worth. So if a studio wants to get involved and they're like, well, what is it? I tell them for each round, for just this country, for the U.S., it's $100,000, Canada, $100,000, U.K., $100,000. And I have studios all the time who are like, no, I'm going to give you $5,000 and stick my name on it. I'm like, mm, let me tell you where you stick that money. And that's really an issue, right? Because um, one of the things that happened the, the most in that when all of the diversity initiatives come in is that they want to say they're doing the work but they really aren't and aren't interested in doing it so they kind of you you mentioned this on another call we've had they put band-aids on it to pretend they're doing something and they're not really interested in actually fixing the like taking the problem out from its roots yeah i mean when a company offers a hundred million dollars because i think what netflix has done that i think warner media's done a few of them have been like oh well, we're going to give a hundred million dollars to content i'm like really really and as much money as you've made off of the backs of bipoc let alone just being in this country off the backs of of slate like really and you a hundred million dollars mm. okay and then they want all of us to be happy about it. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll take the $100 million, just us. And then you can give the next person $100 million and the next person. But I, I, and I'm very serious about this. Here's the other thing. And I, people, have, people when they hear me say this, everybody just kind of stops. And you may have heard me say this, Abby, which is this. Can we stop just having marginalized people in the room? Because they're like in the writer's room directing. Oh, I'm a hire one. I'm a hire two. Whatever. No, 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 no. That that's not the way it should actually work. Because this country has always centered whiteness, right? So I know what white guys. Mean. I have to to exist in this country. They don't need to know what I think. 
So why aren't BIPOC and the disabled and LGBTQ plus community, the intersection thereof, writing for everybody? Why are we acting like, oh, well, we're gonna hire one Latinx writer and or one indigenous writer or one black writer? Because it's never like all three of us, <laughs> right? It's always one of us. I got a question. Why are we not the ones who are actually running the shit, right? Because we're the ones with interesting stories to tell. We've seen your story over and over and over again. And if you did want us to actually write from a white male perspective, we could all do it and do it very, very well. The perspective you can't write from is ours because you keep trying to steal our shit. Y'all fuck it up. And then you're like, oh, we should probably give you the money. And then you don't really want to give us any money. You want to give us so much less money than our white male counterparts. How about this? How about y'all have a seat? and let us run this shit. Because like I said, in the state of California, when a company is run by a woman of color, profits go up by as much as 30%. So why aren't more women of color running stuff? Oh, oh yeah, that's right, white Trump's green. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's unbelievable when you look at the facts that, it, you know, at least we have people like you that are paving the way for others to hopefully have a better future and then you know than the present we encounter today uh fingers crossed here's what i would tell young people today doing it don't necessarily look at the traditional uh routes of raising money brand partnerships brand that's yes to a certain extent you have to build an audience you have to do your homework and all of that but brands because advertising and marketing has a lot more money than the studios are willing to give to young people starting out, especially young BIPOC starting out or anybody, young marginalized people starting off. Look for brands. There are a lot of brands who want to, you know, partner with you. Uh, you do, again, you have to do your homework. So you, you've heard me uh, a lot of times when I walk into a clubhouse room, I'll just say who I am and I'm like, Google me. <laughs> and I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean, do your research. Find out who it is that you're talking to. Now, I do know right now there are a lot of people in Clubhouse who are making fake IMDb pages and everything, but do a deep dive. There have been articles written about me. There are blogs that I've written. You can find out who I am, the projects I've worked on. And the funniest thing is being in Clubhouse, I, I've run into people I haven't seen in years who've come to a stage and they're like, hi, I work with Cheryl back and da 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 and we worked on this film together and I actually said, it's a good thing I don't lie. <laughs> <laughs> Actors well, executive producers I've worked with, directors I've worked with, like all the time, right? And they're like, yeah, because I work with Charlotte, da 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 And I'm like, yeah, it's in my, on my IMDb page. So if you do a deep enough dive, you can see the people who are actually doing the work. And that's what I tell, do your homework, do your homework. The one thing, so when I was coming up, really the only way to get in this business uh, was to go to film school, right? There really wasn't another way. Now, because of content creation, shooting stuff on your iPhone, which I don't actually think people should do, I mean, if you want to practice, that's great. But but cameras are cheap enough these days, right? Because when I came up, you were shooting on eight millimeter, sixteen thirty-five. Like, you know, it, it was it was expensive. So the one thing I would say is, a practice your craft. 
Study and Google. So one of the things that on Clubhouse, I said to a lot of young people on stage, this is my favorite example, which is this. This is about studying your craft. In The Godfather, how do you know before Michael ever opens his mouth that he's the one who's going to take over the family? Francis Ford Coppola did it on purpose. He's the only one in uniform and it's the medals that he has that's across his uniform. You know, Michael is A, a survivor and B, a stone cold killer. Before he ever opens his mouth and utters a word of dialogue, that is filmmaking. Filmmaking is about the wardrobe, the lighting, everything else. Dialogue is last. Show me, don't tell me. And so what I tell a lot of young people who are in this business and do you, film school's expensive. Film school is much more expensive than even when I was there. When I was at the American Film Institute, we were part of the National Endowment for the Arts. So the tuition I think was 10,750. Now it's what, 60, 65,000? I mean, Jesus. <laughs> I've looked into it and it's very expensive. <laughs> really expensive. So what I would say is look at films study, read about them, read about why the filmmakers made the choices that they made. All of the things that I learned in film school, people can learn online, right? There was no online when I was in film school. So, <laughs> I mean, when I was talking about those diversity forms they gave me, those were actual forms that they handed me and I ripped up, right? They weren't online where you go online and fill some stuff and do attachments and all of that. Nah, that wasn't what it was about back in that day, back in those days. So that's what I would tell people. It's really, it's about studying the craft. Because remember one thing about filmmaking. I don't have a BA, I have a BFA. I don't have an MA, I have an MFA. It is a fine art. And just like painters and sculptors, and dancers, you have to practice it over and over and over and over and over before you ever get even halfway good at it. I look at some of the some of the stuff I made back in the day. This stuff was crap. Like, it, was, it was so bad. Like it was bad. Uh, but I kept studying. I kept studying, and I kept working, and I kept reading, and I kept doing my homework, and all of that right? Until some of the content that I make now is good. I will say this, I have made crap just because it was a check. And here's the other thing, there is nothing wrong with that. There isn't. Because even on those films, I learned something. I have learned something on every film, on every project I have ever worked on. I learned something and just be open to it. Right. I, I'm going to keep making content. I'm going to keep doing stuff and I am going to keep learning. Um, and one of the best things is having so many young people who volunteer for Women of Color Unite, like Jasmine, like Manal, who teach me things. Right. Because even I sometimes in working in diversity, equity and inclusion, sometimes, I, you know, I'm just going to say sometimes I'm an old bitch. And so I, sometimes I even I fall into, oh, things have always been done this way. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. You can always find your own way. There is no one way to do it. Study. Analyze. Google. I love that, especially like. 
Yeah, there's so much to learn out there. Especially today, I feel like we sometimes forget that we're so privileged that we have all the information at the reach of our fingertips and it wasn't always like that. So we get kind of like a little bit lazy, but everything is out there. So we definitely should take more advantage of that. One of the things I will tell your audience, you can find it online. Uh, it is one of my favorite short films. So I'm a, I'm a film festival judge. I've done the Pan-African Film Festival. I've done a lot of film festivals. Now I mainly stick to one, Holly Shorts Film Festival. And this was, this was a film that I actually saw at Holly that I judged and I immediately said, yes. <laughs> it is one of my favorite short films and ever. The name of the film is Glenda. It is a 2014 film. The cast is Tova Feldshu. Nicole Cosgrove is the director who wrote the screenplay. It is 10 minutes. And to me, it's some of the best filmmaking I've ever seen. So if you want to show something, not tell, watch that film. Watch that film. It is 10 minutes. It will, you will, that's, that's some great, great filmmaking. And so that's the kind of thing that I like to tell people is that you have everything at your fingertips. One of the things I would also tell people is read the screenplay Tootsie. I know it's an old movie. I know Dustin Hoffman in drag, all of that. Read Tootsie. Tootsie is one of the best screenplays that follows this is what's supposed to happen on this page this is what's supposed to happen on this page it it follows that to a t it's one of the most perfect screenplays as far as that's concerned that i think ever written so those are two those are two things that i would actually tell people so if you want to see what's supposed to happen in the first 25 pages when char character arcs when you're supposed to hit your beats all of that read tootsie you can find it online. And then for uh, filmmakers, if you want to see when I say show me, don't tell me, watch that short film. You can find it online. One thing I wanted to touch on before I let you go, you talked about it at the beginning, the importance of making your own family and finding people, you know, that you resonate with. And I would love it if you have any advice on that and, you know, how to make it strong and build up strong foundation for it so that it can actually be something that continues on in your career it's, it's standing your truth and find other people who believe that i think one of the things that this industry has always said is you have to work with certain people even if you don't believe that believe them morally <laughs> ethically that's not true that that's so not true you can find other people who not only ascribe to your way of filmmaking, whatever particular way that that is, but that have the same morals and beliefs that you do. Uh, and the best thing about this time that we live in is social media is such an equalizer. It has become an equalizer. You can tweet out something and find somebody who believes in a lot of the same things you do. And that's how we've made some of our partnerships, like um, the uh, Jamila Jamil, uh, she was, she's on Twitter. And so she and I just started talking about body positivity. And so later this year, she and I are hosting a, we were supposed to do it last year, ah, but COVID. So it's going to be later on this year where we'll have a host an event about body positivity and sizes and all of that kind of stuff. So you can find those people 
on social media. And I think that that has become the great equalizer about finding your tribe. And I have found my particular, I, I will say this, I keep trying to not say tribe and say community instead, because my indigenous members were like, could you stop saying that word? I'm like, okay. Cultural appropriation, let me knock that off. So find your community, find your people. And you can through social media. And again, look sideways. I know like on Clubhouse, people are always looking towards the moderators and stuff. Look, look at the audience with you. Click on people's profiles. See how you can connect with those particular people. When we match mentors and mentees, I call it um, the non-secret sauce, right? Because we are able to pull out information and we match people. Sometimes it, they could be a screenwriter or something like that, but sometimes we'll match them on their love of, you know, uh, of a particular sports team or something interesting that's happened to both of them. And those connections, those are real connections, right? So it's not always just about what the person does. If you look at it, uh, Bill and Nima, yes, they're both producers, but they are known as being directors. I am just a producer, right? And what I mean by that is I'm not a hyphenate, I'm a slash, I'm a producer slash line producer. But you never know what you're going to connect with someone. And so it's not always just about the filmmaking. It is about everything else in your life, right? All the things that we draw on to be a filmmaker, to be a content creator, those are the things that are really, really important. So we, we have people who connect on their love of baseball, I mean, uh, basketball, baseball, football, whatever it is, right? Sometimes the ladies will say, yeah, I'm from this place. I'm a big team member. And then we'll see somebody, another mentor who'll say something similar. Th those are some of the ways that people connect because what really people want to do is connect on a human level. And that's the other thing to remember, even when you're looking for a mentor is to connect on a human level. And also this, what do you bring to the table? So I used to tell my students this all the time when I taught, when they would send out inquiry letters or post asking for a job or something, I say, don't make it all about, I, 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 I'm great, I'm wonderful, I went to this school, I'm great, I'm wonderful, I went to this school, I did this and I did that, and I, mm, nobody wants to hear that. I'm just being honest because we get a ton of them. What we wanna hear is how you are going to make our life easier. What do you bring to the table? And a lot of that is actually research. Look at somebody's LinkedIn profile. So if you send something to somebody, I'm gonna take sports for instance, and we're, I'm in Los Angeles, so let's take the Dodgers. And you wrote something about, um, uh, I can work late so that you can go to a Dodgers game right? That's connecting to somebody on a human level. That's bringing something to the table. You're letting this person know, hey, I love the Dodgers too. I will work late so you can go to a Dodgers game. Do you know how that would get somebody's attention? As opposed to, I'm great, I'm wonderful. I, I graduated from school with this degree and I did blah, blah, blah. Yeah, okay. So have a whole bunch of other people. So what do you bring to the table? How do you make that person's life easier. So a lot of people who want to meet with me, a lot of times it's, Miss Cheryl, how can we, how, how can I volunteer? And I just put them, put it away. I'm like, because we'll do something in which we will need volunteers for, right? Because again, 
can't get Hollywood to fund us, sweat equity of women of color. So when people say that, I just put it in the back of my head. I'm like, okay, they're willing to volunteer. They're willing to make my life easier. And that is the one thing to remember that all of these people, everybody, in, we're, we're, we're just a person, we're a human being. So how can you connect on a human level with us and make our lives easier? So that that's one trick. And let me tell you something, it works. It absolutely works. A quick story, Nima Barnett, who, again, my mentor, uh, there have been times when I haven't seen her for years, like, because she and I are both working. And so we'll end up at the same film festival, like the Pan-African Film Festival, which is where I tend to see all the people I haven't seen in a year, like all the Black people in the industry, we're all there. And so Nima is such a giving person and gives out such wisdom that normally she has a line of people in front of her. And I'm like, hmm. And I realized, how to spend time with my own mentor. So she's always talking to people. So I go, I stand in line, I get two plates of food, one for her, one for me. And I come back and there sometimes when she's standing there with her husband, I will get, I'll be like, I'm not getting anything for me. I can always go back. I get two plates of food and I bring it to her. This is what in there, cause she never eats. Cause she's sitting there talking to people. And I will go, hey Nima, I got your food. I'll like come up behind her hair. I got you food. She has a whole line of people. She'll turn around and go, and now I have her attention. I have learned that trick, right? But I'm the one who went, I stood in line because a lot of times at like all of these events, it's stuff. And I told my students, I said, try it. Somebody you want to talk to, they got a line of people in front of them. Go stand in line and get them food. They're like, what do they want? I was like, get a little bit of everything. Trust me, there is something on that plate that they will eat because in the back of all of our minds who get stopped by people who want to ask us questions is, God, I'm hungry. Like that's in the back of our minds, right? And so if you do that, if you stop making it about yourself and how you can be of service, it goes a long way. Try that trick. Anybody that you want to meet at any festival, at any event, try bringing them food and see if you don't, while they at least eat that plate of food, if you don't have their undivided attention. It works and it works every time. I think that's such a beautiful thing. And it's, it all goes back to the humanizing, right? It's, it's what we talked about earlier. At the end of the day, we're all just human. We all have the same needs and, you know, it, that's what connects us all in, in the most basic level. Exactly. And that's really how I've been able to sustain this career, even fighting all of the isms, even when it wasn't a thing, is the fact that they were very human connections and friends that I made who believed in me, who believed in what I stood for, who you know, helped me at times when I needed it in my career. And I mean, like giving me a job or, you know, a recommendation or an attorney or, or whatever it was, right? And so that's the thing. It's just to remain in service. And when I say that, I really mean remain in service to humanity because filmmakers and your favorite producer, director, writer, actor, everybody's still human. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much for sharing that, that special trick. <laughs> I'll definitely try that in the future and all of your wisdom and just 
your amazing energy. I always end up so pumped whenever I talk with you. You have a really special light. So thank you for sharing your time with me today. Absolutely. Here's the funny thing. My publicists are like, you're doing too many. You got to start charging. I'm like, first of all, I'm never going to charge BIPOC and I'm never going to charge young people because it is one of the ways that people have kept us out of this industry, right? When you look at how much film schools cost and you have people like me and Tim Story and other people who are on the app on Clubhouse who uh, have gone to film school, I really do think that it is part of our job to download what we know. I can't tell you a trick of the trade. What I can tell you is information that was given to me in spaces where we have, you know, been kept out of. So I think that, but you know, it's on my profile. My mother had uh, told me that I had one job as a human being on this planet. And that was to make the world a better place for the next generation. And by doing it, I make it a better place now. The last thing I will tell you, when we did the first round of hashtag start with eight, remember we got through it together. I'm like, be like, we were like, ooh, okay, it's all coming at us. So we sent out a form to everybody and asked them what they got out of it. 76% of my members said that what we gave them was hope. And I realized that when you systematically keep somebody out, that is what you rob them of. You rob them of hope. So I told somebody when we got that statistic, I said, so when I die, I said, all I want on my tombstone is she gave the world hope. That's it. And you do, you really do um, give the world hope and actively make it a better place. So thank you for so much for everything you do. And I very much look forward to seeing everything you will continue to do. Join us again next month on another Real Talk Secrets to Success to learn all the top tips from industry insiders. Until next time.